0: Hey everyone, this is David and Heidi here. And before we get into this week's episode, we wanted to tell you about our good friends over at CLT because they're making this episode possible. How do you know CLT, right?
1: I sure do. Yeah, I'm on the board of academic advisors, so I'm really intimately close familiar. To the people. <laughs> yeah, and they are amazing. They just have this vision of creating a a test that will actually serve the student uh not just the administration of a university. And mm. in in doing that, they're able to actually connect the right students with the right universities. Uh and it ends up serving the whole system much better than just a disconnected test that's interested in profit. So mm. I'm really I'm proud to be involved and highly recommend CLT for parents who are looking for an alternative to the SAT A C T kind of big business standardized test model.
0: Yeah. So what they do is they offer as you said, standardized tests for grades three through 12. So not only is it the ACT and the SAT, the college prep tests that get you in the doors of the universities, but they also have alternatives to things like the Iowa tests and the, and then the PSAT and all that. So as the kids are getting older and they have to take these tests, this is giving you an alternative to the tests that basically you're doing just to play the game. If that's you, so these tests can be taken online, and they offer a better, just kind of overall testing experience. It's a shorter testing time. They have an emphasis on critical thinking skills, and then the you know includes the reading of meaningful passages from classic and historical literature, which is not something that you're going to find in the SAT or the ACT very often. And if you're listening to this podcast, that's probably something that matters to you. Uh, they also provide valuable academic. Feedback for parents and teachers. And uh, their goal is still in all of that to encourage a love of learning in students. Whereas a lot of tests teach you to take tests, these kids are learning how to, um, you know, they're learning not just how to take tests, but they're also having their love of learning being fed. The CLT College Entrance Exam is accepted at 250 colleges and universities, which offer over $100 million annually in scholarships for CLT students. And families with younger students will be excited to learn that their new assessments for grades three through six will be available online uh, this upcoming spring. So if you would like to make CLT assessments part of your family's education, you can explore all their upcoming exams at cltexam.com slash close reads. We have our own link with them. So cltexam.com slash close reads. Heidi, Jack took this test, right?
1: He sure did. Yeah. And he had a good experience with it and he recognized... Uh, a lot of the readings from his own education, which made him feel more confident, uh, hmm. and I was confident uh, in sending him in. I I don't, you know, sometimes as parents we feel like we need to protect our kids from big business educational systems that might do them harm. But mm-hmm. with CLT, I know that they're, that the test is designed to nourish the mind and soul of the child. And so Jack had a great experience and. Now we're bombarded with emails inviting him to apply to these amazing colleges. <laughs> so it's has been a to overall have. such a positive experience. Yeah, that's right.
0: Well, we are... Um thrilled to be partnering with them and that they're you know to help them spread the word and they're helping us do what we do here and we you know it's a true partnership and um, we know you know Heidi's on the board we know people who work for them so um, if you're at this stage in your life if your kids are at this stage in their academic careers please consider CLT again it's cltexam.com slash close reads that link is in the show notes as well on this episode okay that's enough of this though CLT is great but so is the picture of Dorian Gray so here's this week's episode thanks for listening And I'm Tim McIntosh.
1: And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader, in which we are discussing Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, Chapters 8 through 12. As you can tell from my voice, I am not David Kern, our fearless leader. Uh, we had a scheduling, scheduling snafu this week. And so it's just Tim and I that you have before you. Tim, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well, Heidi. I'm hanging I, in there, I think would be the more accurate term. Yeah,
1: I picture you as like a baby kitten hanging off a off yes. of a branch. Yes. Right? yes. With your, My with, claws are yeah. not
2: terribly well formed. So it's basically just like willpower that's actually keeping me on the branch.
1: I admire you. You are hanging in there. Yeah, just picture <laughs> Tim as a baby kitten on a poster, guys. <laughs> and pray for him.
2: <laughs> and Heidi, you're back at school.
1: Yeah, we have started of, Speaking yet. of
2: holding on by your claws, I how know, is school? Right? Yeah,
1: we all have the same life, Tim. <laughs> we are actually <laughs> still a week and a half away. We don't start at um, St. Hild in Colorado Springs. Great school, by the way. Love teaching here. Uh, but we don't start until after Labor Day. Um, oh, okay. I just, That's we're nice. just Big believers in August. I'm like, I yeah. don't know what this whole trend is starting like the second week of August, but I am not on board.
2: I don't understand it either. I don't understand it either. In Georgia, it is so blazing hot Yeah. that I just feel for all these kids who, well, I don't know. Maybe it's a relief to go into an air conditioning building.
1: Yeah, I who guess knows? so. Although yeah. I was just in Georgia and the way you guys do air conditioning, like I love it in the sense that you have it, right? Because it is hot. It is like...
2: It it's is hot.
1: Hot, yeah. It's hotter than Dorian so, Gray's desires. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Before we get to the book, that was a great right? segue. Thank I hate you. to ruin this. Yeah. What percentage of homes in Colorado, like, do you think have air conditioning?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. I would guess over half, but not a okay. hundred. Like, we're not, we don't. We need it a couple months a year, right? um, but we, like my house doesn't have air conditioning. We just have windows. Um, I also like to be hot. So that's the weirdo that does, which brings me to what I was going to say about the air conditioning in the South, which happens every time I go there, which is that it's really, really hot outside and you want to die and melt into the pavement. And so everybody turns the air conditioning down to like 52 degrees. So then I walk into every... Every inside place is freezing cold. It is like it's it's a roller coaster, Tim.
2: It is. It's like a way to get like your lips chapped from all like the radical changes in temperature.
1: Yeah. It's a lot. No,
2: I know exactly. The the office where I work where in fact I'm recording this right now, they keep it so cold and so I walked from our condo to my office space. It's maybe a quarter mile walk. I think it's 100 degrees today, and I open up the front door of the office, and it's like getting slapped by an icy witch hand. I shouldn't say an icy (laughs) witch hand. That's negative. It feels so good coming out of the heat, but it's just its a change. It is a sharp change.
1: I feel like that is a really good segue back to the book because yeah. an icy witch hand might at first feel like the temptations of Lord Henry, <laughs> but it ends up grasping you by the throat and throttling you into the depths. Well so, done. Thank you. Well done. All right. Yes. Okay. So, this middle section of the book, Tim, how was it? How was it for you? This is not a good question, but I'm hoping you'll grasp. No, on no, it's a very good, good question.
2: I feel like the book for me. Just all of a sudden gained traction. It all of a sudden is probably too strong a statement. Like I was, I was feeling it when we met Sybil. I was like, "Oh, okay, this is intriguing." Dorian Gray is going to fall in love, and when she—here comes the spoiler alert—commits suicide, I thought, "Oh goodness, Dorian's in big trouble now." Not like with the law. I wasn't worried about that.
1: Right. But English this is a book about his soul.
2: Right, right. There's nothing for it's him to worry be about. Fine. But he I did have a sense that this was gonna be this was gonna plunge him in a direction that he did not want to go, especially when he just started shrugging it off. You right. know, there was this sense like he's shrugging it off, and you're like Dorian. You can't shrug it off. It's going to get you. It's going to eat at you. And sure enough, we're starting to see his decline. Though, Heidi, his decline was handled in the book in such a unique way, wasn't it? It, Hmm. The narrator kind of zooms way back for, I guess it's chapters 10 and 11 and previously, we're in drawing rooms, we're at the theater, we're at the opera, we're having a good time, and there's lots of banter between these colleagues. But now, our narrator zooms us way back for this really peculiar chapter. And I and, and the really peculiar chapter is kind of a dwelling with Dorian's kind of aesthetic desires coupled with this mysterious yellow book that he comes in contact with. What did you make of these, of this chapter?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that this chapter that these chapters that we just read, this is where the book, to your point, this is, this is also to me where the craft of the storytelling meets the profundity of the the mm-hmm. potential profundity of the idea of this book, the plot of this book. And I think they're just beautifully written. Like, yeah. I think he just like nails this section in, in so many ways. You brought up the change in setting. I don't know if that's exactly what you meant, but um, that the setting moves external uh towards internal it's almost like nesting boxes like you brought up how outside uh, or how earlier in the novel we're always outside of a home or in somebody else's home we're in society right mm, um, yeah. always either we're at the opera or we're at a dinner party or we're meeting in a drawing room like wherever like it's it's an external setting in the sense that it is public um and and then in this section dorian is at home but he's still receiving visitors and interacting with his valet which is how you mm-hmm. do say it indeed mm. in, in in England um and uh lest someone think i pronounced it wrong i've been listening to the <laughs> audiobook and they say valet uh, yes anyway so uh, and he's dealing with his feelings about the picture and settling that. And then, and what I think is the most memorable scene in the novel, at least for me, is when he takes the picture upstairs into like the secret room, right? So that's like this nesting box. You're out in society and then you're inside a a home and then then you're in a secret room. And and the picture is moving from the public setting into the interior setting, which I think is an objective correlative, everybody Mm. take a shot, for what's going on in the novel. Um, People are seeing while dorian was looked the same as he did in the picture when he was united that was in the, that was in public and then he moves uh to maybe almost like a um
2: like an attic almost yeah
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But that second, the first movement is from a public setting to a private setting um, in which only certain people are received. Um, And then when he starts to panic and want to hide the picture, he takes it within, right? It's It it goes entirely interior, which is a psychological movement as well as a literary, um, as well as a movement in setting. And I just think that's so brilliantly done on Oscar Wilde's part. So that was something I noticed this week. What else stood out to you, Tim? in this section.
2: We don't hear much from after the opera, after the death of Sybil, we don't hear much from Dorian's friends. I mean, and this exactly Mm -hmm. matches what you just laid out for us about the action of the picture. The picture goes from, let's say, public to domestic to extremely private and hidden. And Dorian goes from public to like he's hanging out with his friends in the early part of the book and we hardly even see them until chapter 12, we kind of re-meet Basil after a long time distance. And we don't see Henry hardly at all, which is really interesting because Henry is this most influential person on Dorian's life. But now it's almost like Henry Henry's influence uh, Henry doesn't need to exert influence anymore. He's already fully taken over Dorian's mind and heart. Right? He—he's just—he's got him. Dorian is just doing kind of what Henry wanted him to do, and living the kind of life that Henry wanted him to live. And so we don't need to see Henry's influence for a little while because we're feeling it everywhere in Dorian's psyche.
1: Right. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you today. Uh, that 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 I've been pondering in reading this section is Henry's influence. How much of what's going on with Dorian um, mm. here is Henry's influence and how much is his own kind of true self um, staking a claim to his actions here? what do you what do you think about that?
2: I see it that Henry's influence is now, complete Hmm. you know like like vader at some point was (laughs) darth vader was completely taken over by who the emperor right and we don't even see the emperor in the first two movies of star wars but we know that the emperor is totally taken over darth vader and you know we kind of see how demonic and nasty, the emperor is in the third movie or whatever. But um, with Dorian, I feel like we see Henry, we see Henry, we hear Henry, all these quips and kind of like, let's live on the shallow side of life. And he kind of, um, oh, what's the word? When, when Sybil kills herself, Henry is the first to kind of cast it off as just sort of like a meaningless event and so I feel like by the time we get to these chapters, Dorian is just operating on his own convictions. He may have gotten the convictions from Henry, but now I think they're completely his own. Hmm. Do, do you see it that way? Do you see it differently?
1: I don't know. I, I, I think that I like what you said about complete. And I really, I just have to pause and really just do homage to your comparison of the um, my star
2: wars comparison I love
1: that like well <laughs> my young apprentice like i can right, just see him. right. he practically says that to him when he convinces him not to act on his conscience and go back to sybil which of course Dorian couldn't either because anyway because sybil was already dead yeah um but henry essentially encourages dorian to um to turn sybil's death into just a scene from Dorian's life. Mm. Right. Like Mm. she's like a supporting character to like Dorian's development. Right. Um, Mm. And he, but there's a really interesting, there's a really interesting line in there when it says that Henry just sits back in pleasure and watches, watches the young egoist kind of absorb it back into himself. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I've been wondering like is, is Lord Henry's influence um is he just the catalyst for what always would have happened to Dorian anyway? Oh or, wow, yeah. Wow. Or is is Dorian truly corrupted by Henry? Or is it, or is it some kind of kind of overlap of the two? Is it is it the two coming right. together? Dorian was always this kind of egotistical, he was destined to be this histrionic you know, narcissist, yeah, um, right? Oh, and just Lord Henry saw it, or, or the other option that I find a bit intriguing is that Lord Henry is getting Dorian to live out his own fantasy life that he doesn't oh, have, yeah. like the courage or the you know the true zest for life to live. Yeah. Himself,
2: right? Right? Totally. The question is, I mean, one of the questions of all time, right? I mean, it's agreed. It's, a variation of the nature nurture question if if jack your son went off the rails um would you point back to the hard bad influences in his life or would you say no there was always something in there in jack that kind of just blossomed and this person just happened to be the kind of gardener of that bad right. seed or something like that or is it no, bad company corrupts good morals. We, we imitate what we see. I think this book is is answering the question in the second way. I I yeah. see it as under first, Basil convinces Dorian of how beautiful he is. He appeals to his ego. And then that's the only opening that Henry needed. Henry swoops in. And kind of completes the task that Basil unwittingly started. And so I think that we're meant to see Dorian as being duped by, by Henry. And kind of having not much of an inner self before he met Basil and Henry. Agreed. You think that?
1: I do. And I think that Oscar Wilde rolls this out in this section beautifully. I mean, you know how interested I am in the psychology of the characters. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that Oscar Wilde slow rolls this sad childhood that Dorian had, this like deprived childhood with this overbearing grandfather and um, this fantasy lost mom. and. yeah. Um, and that's uh, that that Dorian's been kind of dwelling and brooding over his sad story and turning into a beautiful sad story in his mind, right? My mother was yes. so beautiful and there's this like sad tale of woe in my past that adds meaning to my beautiful life. Um, but his his overbearing grandfather doesn't want anything to do with him. And so he hides him in the nursery. And then the nursery is where the painting goes.
2: Uh, so yeah, entry, there's a lot going
1: on. Right. It's there. so perfect. Like it's like a pleasure to read. Like that they they're putting this painting that holds all of Dorian's like wickedness and his id, right? The in the yeah. in Freudian yeah. sense, because you know that Oscar Wilde was reading Freud. Like so there's For sure. this, there's this this id part of him that's holding all of this depravity is going back into this symbolic deprived childhood place and being Uh locked away Uh so nobody can see it like how that is one of the most compelling um like a vivid psychological images i just like a bravo to oscar wilde i think he nailed that i loved it
2: yeah yeah i i think he's really hitting his stride now in the book he's really hitting his stride and Dorian is becoming a lot more interior. I liked what you said earlier that Henry kind of helped frame the death of Sybil as kind of a dramatic event that is in the life of Dorian. Right. Everything is becoming subject to his kind of moods, pleasures, convictions, tastes and distaste. Everything is becoming subject to that, which in so many ways, it's kind of, um, it's the height of internal disease, you know? Everyone is a player in my play. I'm never a player in anybody else's play. I'm never a character in anybody else's movie. Everyone is kind of um, acting in accordance with this kind of, vision of the world that I have. And they either please me or they don't please me. It's such, I mean, we've, we know people like this, it's just a dreadful way to live. And it's not a pleasant person to be around people that have that kind of, um, right. it's just narcissism. It's just so unpleasant to be around. And we we are seeing Dorian move in that way farther and farther and farther.
1: Right. So as this was happening, Tim, like how, how do you, I don't know how to ask this. Like, do you care? Do you feel like you were sympathetic towards Dorian and you wanted him to be saved and you're disappointed or surprised? Or does this feel more like a a natural progression that you were expecting all along and we're just kind of seeing in a literary sense how it takes place like I, re- I or some or something else i don't want to create a false dichotomy either what is your reaction as a reader to dorian's descent, yes yeah. and decline moral decline
2: right i it feels to me like a tra- like a shakespearean tragedy like mm-hmm. i'm thinking especially about Macbeth, who starts off we don't know whether he's Pure and innocent at the beginning of the play. But he's certainly someone to be honored and respected. He's a great warrior. He's esteemed by the king. You know, he has good things going for him. And by the time he kills the king, we sort of know okay, let's watch this tragedy play out. And by the end of the tragedy, we have a strong sense that Macbeth is going to meet his reward, his kind of justice is going to be his reward and it's going to go poorly for him. And part of the pleasure of watching that play is seeing how justice is fulfilled, even though it seems impossible. You know, the witches give this prediction, you know, and not until the woods of Dunsinane come to the castle. And he's like, that's never going to happen, but it does happen, you know? So that's part of the pleasure of watching it. And that's kind of where I am. I mean, this is terrible, but this is kind of where I am with Dorian. I'm kind of like, okay, we know it's going to only go in a bad direction. We're going to slowly see him decay and implode. And I guess the main question that I have now is like, what would justice look like for Dorian? Mm. Like, how is this going to revol- resolve? Is it, is it just we're going to see his picture completely decay and collapse you know as as like the painting of his soul or is there is there any possibility of any sort of redemption i think we were seeing some possibilities of that maybe mm. but i don't i don't really know how do you view it do you see this as a tragedy do you see this as like oh there's there's the possibility of like repentance and renewal
1: mm.
2: um where are you in 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 reading the book
1: yeah, it's a good question. I'm curious, you said just a minute ago, I'm not trying to reflect this back on right. you because I don't want to answer the question, but um, because I'm happy to answer the question, but you said you see maybe some indications of hope. What would those yeah, be um, for you?
2: They're, they're just, especially in chapter 11, there are references to um, Christ hmm. and there's a kind of picture. He steps into the to a church And it's just an aesthetic event, I think, at that point. But I think there's—I just wonder if there's something for Dorian that the kind of aesthetic experience of this beautiful church might become something that is more than just an aesthetic experience. Hmm. I, if I had to bet, I would bet no. But I still want to acknowledge that there is a glimmer of that in mm-hmm. here.
1: Yeah. I find this whole section, and I, I think I said this on the first podcast, and now that we're here in the middle of the book, I'm going to reiterate this. I find this book so compelling. And because Oscar Wilde is remembered as... um as as a hedonist, right? Yeah, um, debauched. As, yes, and he's remembered for advocating for hedonism, which he did in the public square. Absolutely, he did lecture tours. He read his stories, but uh, and and he would and he dressed flamboyantly. He lived a very very. I mean, you can you can look him up on the internet if you want to see the kind of life he lived. It's very public, and and it's some of it's hard to read, and. I and yet, like his children's stories, his fairy tales, um, and and this novel to me, tell a different story. Like I can't reconcile Oscar Wilde, the hedonist with uh, with the moral weight of this section of the novel. When you see this person become, so disconnect, like believing he can disconnect goodness from beauty and trying yeah. to live that out. And, um, and it feels to your point, it reads very much like a tragedy, um, yeah. like a classical tragedy. His yeah. hubris and thinking that he can, that his tragic flaws, hubris and thinking that he can separate goodness from beauty. Um, and there's so many references in this section to the classics, right? That he looks, he, he, Seems like he's living a Greek play. Mm-hmm. Uh, those like lots and lots of references um, to this, and and Basil I think plays this role in the in the novel too, as um, casting Dorian in this role as an embodiment of the form of beauty, like in the yeah. in the sense of the classical form, like a Platonic form. Mm-hmm. Um, like he is beautiful, and one of the things that Basil laments about him is that he's lost his innocence; that he's no longer good. And and he mourns that because to Basil, uh, you're not the same Dorian. You're not anymore. I can't paint you anymore, Dorian. You're not beautiful to me anymore yeah. because you're no longer good. Yeah. And clearly in this section, we're supposed to be sympathetic to Basil.
2: We are, right, right.
1: So what are we to make of that? I, I find that such a compelling, like it would be easy, it would be very easy for me to know it to make about straightforward morality tale if it wasn't yeah. Oscar Wilde, which is why I said exactly. in the first podcast, totally. I think that his biography matters a lot and interp- makes it much more complicated to interpret this book. Do you agree?
2: I completely agree. I completely agree. And what's really interesting is we get little glimpses. I just ran across one on page 113 that sure sound like they're taken for Oscar Wilde's diary, you know? We are Go reluctant on. to do yeah. this kind of reading, right, Heidi? We're reluctant to do like autobiographical reading in novels. We don't think it's terribly fair sometimes to the author. But sometimes the book almost just demands it. And this they book seems it, to right? just yeah. demand it, right? So... um Second full paragraph on 113 for me. There were moments indeed at night when lying sleepless in his own delicately scented chamber or in the sordid room of the little ill-famed tavern near the docks, which under a soon name and in disguise, it was his habit to frequent. He would think of the ruin that he had brought upon his soul. I read that and there are a couple of other mentions of things like that. I'm just like, that's got to be Oscar Wilde. That's got to be like from Oscar Wilde's memory. The sorted little room down near the docks. You're like, totally. what's going on, bro? What are you? What's going on down in this sort sorted little room? And I think it's. I don't think he could have gotten away with being, um, much more explicit than he is in the book. I don't think mm-hmm. that any censors would have let it pass. But that kind of created a little bit of um, mystery. It it makes his degradation, kind of like you're imagining what sort of degradation he was getting himself into. And I think it's right. like, literally speaking, it's a pretty good move.
1: Yeah, I agree. Right. And it allows us, allows, is it? I don't know if that's the right verb. It invites us, right? It it almost beguiles us to put our own depraved desires Right. onto this character like what would i do in that sort of little room right what have i what kind of secrets what what what's locked away right what picture of me is locked away in that sad childhood attic right yeah, and, yeah. um and and it's all the more powerful for being ambiguous here yeah it in is the
2: it is yeah. um i, I want to talk a little bit about the yellow book yeah when you read the yellow book did you think this is a real book in like the real world, or this is just a fictional, um, you know, sheaf of papers that is just going to kind of serve this kind of aesthetic fantasizing that Dorian is getting into.
1: Yeah. The yellow book along with the picture have, they both Hold, seem to hold a lot of symbolic weight in the story. One is the actual, um, you know, the, the the divided self of Dorian Gray, <laughs> yeah. um, and um, that that locked away. That's what the picture is. And then the yellow book seems to be to be an embodiment of the temptations of the world that he's going to fully engage in. So, of course, it's very significant that the book is given to him by. Lord Henry. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I did, of course, probably like you, look up whether the yellow book was based on a real book. And it is. Um, it's a French book. Uh, do you know how to pronounce that, Tim? The name I of don't. the
2: book? No,
1: I don't. No, I don't. I don't know. I should have looked it yeah. up. Um yeah. by uh, but I did look up how to pronounce the name of the author. Um, Yoris Carl. I think it's Heisman or Heisman, Heisman, mm. Heisman. Um, and uh, this book was exactly how it's described in the novel. It was a book about a man who intentionally lives out the full measure of hedonism with all the money and freedom in the world, um, and he records his own journey. It's a fictionalized. It's a. Fic- it's a novel. Um, mm-hmm but and that's a first person narrator who writes down all the things that he did and all the things that he feels and all the things that he engaged in from um uh to fully indulge his desires and appetites and to study scientifically uh the way that other cultures have lived out these kind of dark darkness and depravity Yeah, um, and it's just a record of that and so that's what Dorian Gray, that's his new reading material. What are we to make of that, Tim? It makes
2: me think back to the introduction of the book by Oscar Wilde, Hmm. in which he claims there is nothing like moral or immoral about a book. Like this is his big claim, right? And I just want to say, this is the most morally clear book that I have read in such a long time. I know. Right? Thank you right and this yellow book full of the kind of um whatever hedonistic living uh or you know that that dorian either succumbs to or kind of i don't know he he, he reads it and he clearly is entranced by it and it's clearly contributing to his demoralization it's just Oscar Wilde is such a I, what, what are you doing in the forward Oscar Wilde are you just throwing us off the scent is that what you're doing because it just seems ludicrous to claim that there's neither a like the, a book cannot be moral or immoral it, it seems like Henry wrote the forward to this book Lord Henry wrote the forward to this book but the whole book is kind of counteracting Lord Henry's kind of amoralish stance.
1: Right. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's this is I didn't I kind of alluded to this at the first on the first podcast, but that this to me seems like the the whole book absolutely undercuts uh Wilde's stated goal for the book. Right. And it cannot be accidental, right? Or does he right. or or is he searching like is this is why whenever i read oscar wilde i feel like i'm um reading cormac mccarthy because i think the same mm. thing of cormac mccarthy that he gives us these books that seem they seem to uh to promote a world that has no moral center. And yet there's this, Mm -hmm. there's this sense of lament in the book, as if Cormac McCarthy is longing for there to be meaning as if he's saying, here's the saddest story I could possibly write. And yet I still have hope for the world. Yeah. And, and, and there still is virtue here. And I, I feel like that whenever I watch Christopher Nolan, right. It's just this lament Mm for a world with no meaning and a longing to find it somewhere. And with Oscar yeah. Wilde, I just, he'd maybe trying to escape Victorian moralism, but he, this is one of the most straightforward morality tales I've right. ever read.
2: Right. Right. It's such a, it's such a juxtaposition because the introduction seemed so genuine and sincere in advocating that that is not the way that you should read a book. Okay. Let me let me try to make a case that
1: I love this. Um,
2: that the introduction is legitimate. Okay. I don't know that I can do it, but I'm gonna try. I'm gonna say that in claiming there is no there is not a moral or an immoral book, maybe Oscar Wilde is making a claim like we have made on this show before, which is something like. If you come to a book and you have a sort of moralistic axe that you want to grind before you've ever even read the book, then you're not really going to read the book. You're going to read the writing on the axe that you wield, right? Maybe maybe that is the claim that let's move literature, says Oscar Wilde, maybe, out of the realm of judging its worth on a moral compass. And let's judge it on an aesthetic compass and the aesthetics of the book, the beauty of the book is sort of internally generated. It's generated by the rules that the author sets forth. I think I could agree with all of that. And so let's just put aside this kind of like, moral matrix that we come that we typically come to a book with especially us in the 1890s um in Victorian England let's think of of literature in a more broad and expansive way
1: yeah maybe so i mm. i think that that's maybe the best we can get right it's a little um, generous yeah because you know, another thing could be that he just wants to be able to write without the censors telling him what's right. Like, he couldn't write the story without mm. descriptions of Dorian's depravity. Um, and uh, and even though he does leave a lot of it ambiguous, he also delves into quite a bit of it. Um, and he doesn't want to be censored. That was always very clear. And he did not believe that we should have some kind of morality police. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in that I kind of agree with him. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm right there with him. Um yeah. I maybe that maybe that's what he was going for. It just to me it seems like he cannot be that he does not see that this book is that it, this can't book that he's written it can't be. It can't be. Such a call to you to the unity of goodness and beauty. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he's he's much too sophisticated and intelligent to not see like what a sharp juxtaposition his own claims are in the introduction with the rest of the book. There's no way that he doesn't see it.
1: Right. Is there, I mean, what do you make of Basil in this section? What role does he play here?
2: I think he kind of plays the role of, he's almost a penitent. Hmm. Like he realizes he has led Dorian astray he doesn't want to believe all the things that he's hearing about Dorian and he's hearing terrible things. He doesn't want to believe it. But if it's true that Dorian is guilty of all these awful things, Basil feels in some way responsible for glorifying his vanity in the beginning of the book. When, when Dorian was a young man, hmm. does, does Basil change for you or is he? has he always been a man that's had something like a moral compass?
1: Hey, you know, I'm glad you asked me that because last week when we talked about it, I attempted to argue that Basil was just as corrupting or if not, or nearly as corrupting as Lord Henry. Yeah. And I think I was wrong or the book thinks I'm wrong for sure. The book is holding up basil as um I don't know if maybe maybe saying that he's Dorian's conscience is going a bit far, but he is holding him up as sympathetic um and 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 as truly loving mm. Dorian um I'm not sure I agree with that because I think whenever somebody, Whenever somebody claims to love someone else and needs that person to be a certain way um, instead of accepting them for who they, who they are and offering forgiveness right. instead of an expectation, I don't think that's truly yeah. Is it really loving love? or Probably healing. Not. Right. Yeah. Um, but the book seems to disagree with that. The book seems to hold up Basil as, as truly loving Dorian. Um, and, and right now, every scene that he's in kind of, opens up the question of what if Dorian had listened to Basil what if Dorian had showed him the picture what if Dorian had you know can had had responded when they went on that walk and he's confronted and you know all those kinds of things right. what if what if what if he had allowed him to 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 um to exhibit the picture right those kinds of questions are raised because every interaction that um, that Dorian has with Basil has some kind of stake in it. Like there's some mm. kind of decision that Dorian has to make as a result of Basil attempting to wield influence over him and then Dorian mm. resists. Whereas when Lord Henry attempts to wield influence over Dorian, Dorian gives in, right? Um, yeah. And 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 so he is supposed to be like the, the good angel on one of Dorian's shoulders that Dorian yeah. listens to, which is a bit confusing to me because I... The, the basil that we are introduced to in the first part of the novel is obsessed with beauty and his own creations. Yeah and and so your question of whether Basil changes, I think yes, but I don't I'm not convinced that we're given enough um,
2: We don't see it.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure we're given yeah. enough within the story to explain why and to care that much.
2: Yeah, and maybe that's I a see it the same way
1: on Oscar Wilde's part. I don't know. What do you think?
2: I see it the same way. I I think I do think there's a change in Basil. I think he kind of reforms his whatever aestheticism. While he's off screen, that's when the change takes place. And so when he steps back on screen for us, and he's pleading with Dorian to change his ways or to or deny all the wrongdoing that Dorian has, has done. Um that's clearly coming from a different man, a different Basil. We just aren't privy to what happened, except maybe, maybe the change that, has, that we see in Basil is a result of him off-screen hearing all these stories about Dorian and thinking, oh dear, I helped create this. If if Dorian is going downhill, I'm the one who gave him a push mm-hmm. by lauding his beauty, by painting him as this pristine youth. I contributed to that. And so maybe one could argue that's the change that's taken place as he has heard of what Dorian is doing and feels a pang of regret and is now making a statement about that regret.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that's right. On on an aesthetic level, are you at all drawn to this lifestyle that they're living? Like, is there anything in you that's like, wow. Like lounging around. To to go find fine brocades in Italy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, of course. Of course. It sounds wonderful. And for you, are you like, yes, sign me up?
1: Yeah, for sure. But I find it less. I think the older I get, the more, and I'm sure this is true for you too, Tim, like the more empty I find it without anything it's reaching towards. Oh yeah. And hundred percent. Yeah. And that seems a little bit obvious to me now as I'm reading a little bit like why, to your point that you brought up the moment in the church and Mm -hmm. that's what I was thinking. You're right. It seems like an aesthetic experience he's, um, in, in the descriptions of, of, Roman Catholicism and what's so compelling to him. It's the ritual. It's the, you know, yeah. the fabrics that the priests are wearing. It's the 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 story that he um of you know the mingling of death and life and all that. Um and he sees it as completely from the outside as having nothing to offer him other than an aesthetic experience. Yeah. And um and I I just found myself in this section, kind of moved by the fact, like moved so much in my in my soul that, um, that it that there is a temptation to aestheticism divorced from meaning, yeah, in the world, and just thinking that that's one of, you know, from a Christian perspective, that's one of we might say the one of the triumphs of darkness is to separate human civilization from the meaning that it ought Mm -hmm. to be reaching towards, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Bach wrote all of his music, not for, he didn't write it for um, an aesthetic experience. He wrote it for the glory of God. And he really meant that he meant that. And, 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 um, and, and that's the way it ought to be. And it just so, divide, to divide culture from meaning is a great evil. And I yeah. think that that temptation is alive and well amongst, um, people who are trying to preserve Western culture without, mm. without knowing why they're doing it. Yeah. And I, I just yeah. found myself thinking about that and just wondering like myself for my own, for, in my own, in my own life, am I guilty of this? Am I guilty of enjoying of, of kind of being an epicure instead of, an, um, instead of a worshiper, you know, um, and so of the of God. But you're don't such mean a the theistic. Thing. I think
2: you're an epicure, yeah. but you're like a theistic epicure.
1: I hope it's like so. Kind of the only but, way to yeah. be,
2: because otherwise no. you're just skating. You're just right. skating on the surface of things, you know. Which and is so
1: obvious. Here. How boring, it seems so empty and superficial yeah. to me as I'm reading it.
2: Absolutely. And I think that that part of the kind of the, the placement of the narrator in that chapter, I think, is such a smart move because as the narrator steps farther away from hmm. the action of the book and becomes kind of a little bit distant, we can cover all of this catalog of aesthetic desires that Dorian is flipping through and we experience them very quickly and thus we kind of experience them maybe the way that he's experiencing them they're so dissatisfying you know he uh on page 121 then he turned his attention to embroideries and to the tapestries that performed the office of frescoes in chill in chill rooms in the northern natures of northern nations of Europe after that he's like really into jewels after that Perfumes, he's just going from one thing to the other. Nothing can hold his attention. The meaning of any of these things is fleeting, if not unimportant to him. I should change that. I think he can give a sort of historical account meaning Mm. of these things. Um, He can give a, a historical account of these kind of like exotic stories that he reads about, about kings and queens and slaughters and blood. But it's just a sort of retelling meaning. it's There's nothing three-dimensional there. Mm. He, everything has to stay two-dimensional for him. This is the world that he's kind of locked himself or pressed himself into. And the book does a masterful job of keeping it Really superficial and thus making us feel how dissatisfying it
1: is. Right. Yes. Unsatisfying totally it is. I agree. Yep. That's right.
2: Dissatisfying or unsat unsatisfying? unsatisfying maybe both.
1: Maybe, yeah, maybe both. Maybe both. Um, and he's creating a trail of ruin and destruction of human of humanity behind him. And and we're, we're kind of left in the dark on that. And I, I don't know if that's because of this sensor so that he could get his book published or because he realized that that's just like a powerful thing to leave that, that blank. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I, I'm, I think that's good in which we already talked about. So before we end today, this, the, this section ends with, with Basil coming upstairs yeah. with him yeah. and Dorian is going to show him the picture. Yeah. So Why? Why does Dorian invite Basil to see the picture?
2: I don't know. I wonder if it's a sort of first attempt at, I'm going to use a word that I'm not sure is the right word, expiation. Hmm. I, I'm actually, I can't believe that I'm going to do this. I'm going to look it up online. Um, yeah the act of atonement, Mm -hmm. making satisfaction or reparation for an offense. I wonder if it's a first attempt at expiation because um, Basil has been his friend. So maybe there's some kind of leftover affection there, even though he doesn't really want to see Basil when he sees him in the streets. Maybe there's some leftover affection there. Maybe Dorian is hitting the end of any sort of pleasure in life. And and he is riddled with, he seems like he's riddled with guilt. We just see it kind of bubble up here and there. And so maybe this is an attempt to have some sense of comfort offered to him from his friend. If his friend sees just what is happening to his soul, maybe, maybe, hmm. hmm. What do you think? Why does he bring him upstairs?
1: Yeah, I think I I like that. I mean, Dorian secret just like all wicked secrets, like all 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 bad secrets cut us off from communion, mm. like human communion um and communion with God and um that I I wonder if he's like you said there's some um leftover there's this bond that he has with basil and it's also just very telling so i I think that there's that like that psychological reason maybe even that like to your point there's there's a bit of a a, of a spiritual longing for restoration like you're saying and then i also think it has to be basil because basil painted the picture and yeah that's a great point like he he is presented so sympathetically in this section, but we can't forget that it's Basil that makes Dorian's divided self possible. Yeah. Like he's the inventor of this device, this, this thing that, Mm -hmm. that breaks Dorian. Yeah. And, um, so it has to be him. So I, I, You know, if, you know, if David, David was here, the next thing he'd ask is, what are you looking for? And of course, like we end on a cliffhanger. And so I'm looking for what's this going to be like? What's this moment? Like this moment's going to be a turning point in the story because it's the unity of these three personalities, like fake Dorian, real Dorian, and, you know, and Basil, the creator, the one Mm -hmm. who made it all possible. Like Mm -hmm. the Frank, the doctor (laughs) who made Frankenstein, right? Like, yeah. And what's, like, what could be the aftermath of that? Um, Yeah. So, I don't know. What about you? What are you looking for next?
2: I'm curious, very curious about how Basil is going to handle it when he sees the picture. And I'm also, and I don't know that this will happen, but I'm very curious to know if Henry is going to see the picture, and if he does, how he's going to respond to it.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean... He could just say, yeah, oh, I see your degraded picture. Mm-hmm. That's the cost of doing business, buddy.
1: Right. You know, he
2: could say that or he could say, oh, my gosh, what have I done? And I don't know the answer. I don't know which one Henry would say.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Although, you know, Oscar Wilde never never misses a chance to make an overwrought scene in any of his novels. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, right we'll yeah. see how it goes we'll see how it goes yeah. <laughs> um all right well tim do you have any any final thoughts any last things to say as we close it out no. today
2: i'm i'm happy to i'm i'm curious i have forgotten this book i'm totally yeah. to be totally honest i have forgotten i don't know how we're going to end so that's i'm exciting. reading this book a second right. time for the what first a treat time we
1: all have before yeah us.
2: <laughs> yeah that's right
1: um all right well tim thank you for being here and uh we miss david but it's always a treat to have just a chance to talk to you um the two of us so yeah Um, and our guy will be back next week and so next week yep yeah david will be back next week um and uh so we'll keep reading up to chapter 17 next time uh and that's it all right. So join us in, in other news, join us over on Close Reads HQ. If you haven't already, um, lots and lots of benefits for subscribers. Uh, if you love the podcast and you want more from David, Tim, Sean, and I um, go over to, to Close Reads HQ and find out how you can join in all the fun. Um, it is our subscribers who have, um, we, we, take very seriously this community. Um, So we are constantly interacting and creating opportunities for us to connect and talk about books together Um, and lots lots of ways to get connected with Close Reads outside of this flagship podcast. So go over to www.closereads.substack.com to find out how you can get more involved um, for example, next week um, on Tuesday, August 29th, uh, which is the day after this podcast comes out and you still have time to sign up, um, you can join us um, for a subscribers-only live poetry discussion um, at uh, on our Substack page uh, and we will be there talking about Elizabeth Bishop's wonderful poem, The Fish. So if you want to be a part of that, please come over and join us. You can sign up. You have plenty of time even if you're listening to it um, next week um and uh other than that david and sean and i will shortly be having a conversation about alfred hitchcock's rear window um, on our movie conversations uh and we have lots of other things coming up so those are some things you can look forward to and those are some ways you can can involved all right so tim thank you for being here in the midst of your you know hanging off a um a, a branch like a kitten like life, you hang in there, and I will too, and we all will because we are all Western Americans living a crazy life. So, right. um, peace be with us all. All right, for Tim McIntosh, I'm Heidi White. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time. Happy reading.